myth of the superhero programmer. We often hear about it, but it's rarely the reality. Being a superhero on the team takes more than just technical chops, and that's one of the topics that I chat about today with senior developer advocate at Microsoft, Christina Warren. You might have seen Christina before on This Week on Channel 9, or even back in the day at Gizmodo and Mashable. This episode ended up being less of a career chat and more of a friendly exchange about the latest happenings and what we can learn from them. Yes, we even talk a bit about the re-released Grand Theft Auto, the definitive edition. Enjoy the show. Hello, friends. Welcome to The Work Item. And uh, we're getting to the end of the year. What a year it has been. And speaking of which, I should probably introduce you to our guest, Christina Warren. Welcome, Christina. Hey, Jen. Thanks for having me. It's Great to have you here because I have so many questions about your career and I know it's been a while since we chatted in person. How long has it been? Years, unfortunately. Years? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in person, we, we've chatted over like video calls and stuff, but in person, in person, I think it's it's been probably two years. Wow. Yeah. I think I remember you and the team came to Vancouver for... Was it like a hackathon? Maybe? It was a hackathon or something. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Wow. Time flies. Uh, and I don't know. I lost track of time. But anyway, the show is about your career. We're here to learn about your career specifically, Christina. So why don't we start with the probably the most salient question of the podcast? What are you up to these days? Okay. So I am a cloud developer advocate at Microsoft and I focus on Linux. And so um, I, which is sort of funny in some ways, as we talk more, I, I think of backwards in my, in my career, there, there are some funny things there, but, but I focus on Linux and primarily kind of the, the developer experience um, for, for Linux on Azure. And, and I, so I work in the developer relations um, group, which means that I connect with um, you know, users of, of um, Azure and, 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 and Linux users who are either on Azure and are frustrated or like it or might not even know what options we have. And then I also work with different product teams um, who work on the various parts of Azure and who work in the various parts of, of, of Linux um, within Microsoft. And, um, and I work with the, 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 um, the marketing folks too. So to kind of all, all kind of three of those groups kind of trying to help tell the story and, and get people the best experience they can get using our tools, um, especially if they're, they're developing on Linux. Linux at Microsoft. For yeah. folks that are listening to this and they're probably like, wait, what? I know, like hell froze over. They're like, they're like wait, what, what? Yeah, no, and, and it's hilarious because obviously at this point, you know, Microsoft is a massive contributor to open source and, and we have done a complete, uh, I say we, I'm not speaking for the company, but the company has done a complete 180 from its position uh, 20 years ago when it comes to both open source and Linux. But I'm with you. It still is not one of those. Like the fact that I, you know, that I was issued a, a work issued MacBook and that, you know, um, we, we have, you know, Linux services and products and whole teams. There's like a part of me, I'm like, okay, what universe did I, did I enter into? Because a decade ago, that would not have been the case, right? Um, I, I've been with Microsoft for uh, about four and a half years. And um, when I joined, you know, things had, had already kind of been been changing for, you know, a couple of years, uh, I think kind of internally and externally um, in, in terms of how people kind of saw Microsoft as, as not being so attached to like the, the Windows behemoth, um, especially, you know, for developer stuff. But in in that last four and a half years, it's it's changed even more, and and it's been interesting to see. But it's still there is like this. Okay, so I you know like advocate for Linux at Microsoft. It's like yup, 
that is the world we live in. I don't, I don't know how to even describe it because this is the, the contrast to me, the, the image that pops into my head. Was it Balmer at the time that threw an yeah. iPhone? I think that was the case or something along those lines. Yeah. Well, he threw an iPhone at somebody. I, I don't remember what it was. Like, and, and they used to have a thing, I think, like in the Microsoft campuses, at least I remember reading this stuff. Who knows? It was sure not where they had like um, like recycle bins or something where, where people were supposed to throw their iPods so that they could get Zooms instead, you know, because that worked. Um, although I did, funnily enough, I did buy a Zoom a couple of years ago off of eBay. I'd never owned a Zoom because, you know, I Mac user, um, but I bought a Zune and then like uh, it was supposed to be refurbished and supposed to have a new battery, but it, I don't think it really did. Um, and it was it was cool to like look at all this tech they had like in 2010 that was or 2009 even I think it was actually really ahead of its time. Like they had like an OLED screen and like as terms of like a media player it was actually really really good. And and I bought one a couple years ago and then tried to get it working, you know, still with like modern Windows and stuff and. I wound up doing something wrong and kind of borking my my system. It was fine. I brought it back, but um, it was one of those things where I was like, "Yep, this this was fun," but it was it was you know reminded me of kind of oh right, Microsoft did try to get into MP3 players, you know, kind of thing. Um, and and but it was very much like it used to be this world of we have our tools and services and our world, and that is the way that it is. And if you try to use anything else. Um, then, then, you know, you can't do it. And, uh, which, you know, it's kind of like what Apple's whole raison d'etre is. But now I think, uh, that hadn't historically been how Microsoft was like Microsoft when it started, like was, you know, writing interpreters and, and basic stuff for Apple stuff, as well as, you know, for, for, for DOS and, and then, you know, created windows. And, um, now I think it's kind of started to go back to that place where it's like, okay, you know, uh, we have really cool tools and services for people uh, wherever you might be, which I personally appreciate that approach a lot more. And I think as working with developers, developers appreciate that approach more. But, you know, uh, memories uh, are long and it's still for those, especially for those of us who've, who have been around a while in tech, you know, you remember like, yeah, you, you remember the memes right. and, uh, you know, it doesn't go away. It's funny because... I was literally just a couple of days ago talking to my wife about this stuff where the iPhone, we take it for granted these days. We're like, yeah, it's an iPhone, whatever. It's like 14 years. It's 14. Mm -hmm. That's a massive amount of time for technology. Massive. And it feels like yesterday. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, uh, honestly, it does. And and it's so funny because I, I oftentimes, my career in kind of the, the traditional sense, I guess, kind of really did start around the same year, around the same time the iPhone came out. And so I, you know, I don't like to even think about that because I'm like, okay, this thing's I'm getting older and and, and this and that. But like, it, it's so interesting for me to even think about like what the world was like then. And everybody was super excited about the phone. I was super excited about the phone, but I wasn't convinced that it was going to be successful. I wasn't convinced that because of all the things that Apple had going against it, you could only get it on AT&T and it didn't have you know, these other features and, and, and it cost all this money. And, you know, I was just like, okay, it didn't have apps. Like there were all these hurdles to overcome. And then you used it. And even though the very first version wasn't that great, by the time the second version came out a year later, you know, and then they had the iPod touch, it was just like, okay, this is this is the future, you know, like everything else suddenly looked old, like from the minute it came out, even like, you know, you went from thinking, oh, my Blackberry is the coolest thing ever to like, literally, June 29th, 2007 was the last time anybody thought their Blackberry looks cool. 
because then you had this 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 thing from the future just staring you in the face. I remember reading an article and it was I'm pretty sure it's still on archive.org so we can pull it up at some point, but somebody wrote this long laundry list of why the iPhone is going to fail. It's like it doesn't have a keyboard, it doesn't have copy paste, it doesn't have the enterprise buy-in because, you know, yep. everyone was on BlackBerry and that was the the big thing back then. Yep. And wow, what a wrong prediction. <laughs> no, and you know, and the thing is though, those things would have killed I think almost anything else, right? Like I think that any one of those things for a lot of people would have been kind of a, a no-brainer because yeah, it didn't have the enterprise support. It did get it. It did get copy paste. I think those came at the same time. It never got a keyboard uh, because uh, the you know sorry, sorry um, Jim Lazaridis who who loved his BlackBerry keyboard and and for the very few people who are still out there who like love their their physical keyboards like that that model just was replaced with something better once you had capacitive touchscreens. But the interesting thing is is that it didn't matter. You had the web in your pocket. Like that to me was the whole was the whole thing. It was like putting everything else aside. You know, I didn't think it had MMS at first. Uh, you know, like putting everything else aside. It was like you had the web in your pocket, and that just—it's it, hard to overstate how important I think that was. Um, and and how when you look back, you know, God, we're almost at the fifteen-year mark of, of Steve Jobs giving that 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 MacWorld keynote and unveiling the iPhone to everyone being like, yes, it, it is, you know, um, an iPod. It is, you know, like, um, you know, personal communicator. It is, um, I can't remember what the third thing, it is a phone. Like it is all these things in one. And it, that's, it's, it's changed. It's changed everything. I feel like it's one of those things where the same as you just described that revelation of Hold on a second. I can actually open a real web page, not the kneecap version of no, a web page. No, not the kneecap version. Not the terrible like dot moby pages that we yes. used to build. Oh my god, the the, the WAP pages. Yes, Remember WAP? yes, 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 yes. Yep, the one with like four bullet point lists, and you just have to like. Yeah, and 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 then there was like this weird form of HTML that you would have to do if you wanted it to like uh you know like work that wasn't actually a standardized thing. I used to do some freelance stuff for that when I was in college and it used to like be the bane of my oh, existence. Yeah. And, I, and I did not charge enough money to do that sort of stuff. It was God awful. But right, you had the real web. Like you had like, okay, I can zoom in. I, I can do, you know, like I, I, I can I can zoom if I, if I need to. I can do pinch to zoom and, and make it bigger. But like the actual web that I visit on my computer is going to be the same thing that I see on the screen in my pocket. Yeah, wow. And on that technological throwback, Yes. You know, you clearly care a lot about the space. You know a lot about the space. And even before coming to Microsoft, um, you know, you you had a lot of this interest. What sparked all of it? Where did it all come from? God, I mean, I've loved gadgets, I guess, for as long as I can remember. Um, I, I have fond memories of like learning to program my VCR, you know, when I was like, you know, three or four years old. And, and I was always into, you know, like cassette tapes and and um, things like that. And um, I was really, really into video games, which I think is common for a lot of people who get into tech, like video games are for many of us, like our, our entry point. Um, and I loved it. But for me, it was it was interesting because I didn't. I didn't really get into computers until I was about 12. Um, I, I, you know, we had computers at school and we had a computer at home, but I didn't, it was a laptop and it was like 20 pounds. It was a 386 and it was, you know, like 
my dad's and it, it had a black and white screen and you know it wasn't anything like super fun you know to, to play with um but um and so i didn't have like that typical experience where like oh i'm i have you know like i'm gonna create stuff in basic or whatever like i didn't have that stuff i think i programmed some things in logo um on on the mac and you know like fourth or fifth grade but the big thing for me i but i'd always been interested in technology the big thing for me was the web the web i always say was like my first true love and I remember when I first read about the internet and the World Wide Web in, I think it was in a video game magazine, actually. It might have been something else. And I think it was I think it was something about like a modem that came out for the um, Super Nintendo. And they talked about these online services. And it was kind of like there was this service that was kind of a cross between kind of like AOL and but, but it had some like full access to the full internet and and this was back when like you had to make that distinction because you you had like the real web and then you had like you know like the the online services that had their own kind of walled garden things and um and I was I was young you know I was like 11 or 12 and and um I I remember reading about that and just being so excited by that concept of like oh there's all this information out there that's accessible and that's creative. Like I remember being, I think my first time I was ever on the internet proper, I was on Usenet and I was, I don't know, I think I was in the third grade and, and I, it was, a, it was a Melrose Place Usenet thing, um, which, which dates me on a lot of levels. And I was probably too young to be on, on alt.tv.melroseplace or whatever, but who cares? But that was kind of a revelation in and of itself, even though it was all text. Cause I was like, oh, there are all these people talking about, this TV show that I'm obsessed with. And then when I learned more about the web and the fact that you could create these pages and you could have all this information, anybody could just visit it and you had this opportunity to build things, like I just, I fell in love. And and I, I say that was my first true love because it was. And so it was something that I think for me more than anything else, like I, I got, you know, I learned about other aspects of computing and I, I, I got into other, you know, types of things and learned, you know, about the, the specs and the apps and how to do things and networking this and that. But the real thing that always for me was like the thing that made me go, I have to learn more about this was the web. The web is my, my like one true love, like my first love, honestly. Yeah. The, you were talking about the video game stuff. And to me, it, it, just reminded me that that was a gateway to computers for myself as well. Because I remember playing Grand Theft Auto San Andreas. That was my jam. Oh, yeah. And oh, that's a great absolutely game. should not have been playing at that age. But in Eastern Europe, age limits non-existent uh, for when <laughs> purchasing video games and whatnot. So uh, there is that. And speaking of which, they remade it and it's just horrible. Oh, I haven't played the, re the remake yet. Is oh, it, did, did they mess it up? Goodness. This is... I just, you have to look at the Reddit, the subreddit for that game right now, because it's just meme factory. I think oh, no. they botched it really, really bad. Like the oh, graphics. Oh, that's so upset. That's, that's so upsetting. Yes. Yes. As somebody that grew up on that thing, I yeah, was just no, like. I, I grew up on that too. I'm, I'm a little bit older than you, but I grew up on that too. And I loved those games. Like those games were hardcore. Like, like, like uh, Vice City was God. Yeah. Oh my God. Tommy Versetti. Yes. Tommy yes. Versetti. You know, the music, the whole thing. Like I used to just spend so much time like, like driving around and whatnot. Like, I got to the point that I would see cars out and I'd be like, I could just jump inside that car. I'm like, no, you can't. Um, you can't steal a car, Christina. You can't do that. <laughs> but no, but you know, but those games were like amazing. Um, and that's disappointing. I, 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 
been so busy with some other stuff that I've totally missed the whole discourse of the remakes. But they did such a good job. Well, it was a different studio, but like the Tony Hawk people did such a great job. That was one of my games. Um, I don't know if you ever played Tony Hawk. Pro yes. Pro yeah. Okay. Well, the, the Tony Hawk Pro Skater remake was awesome. Like they they did an amazing job with it and 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 kept like the feel and the graphics and the the whole move like it's one of the best remakes I've ever seen, so that's really upsetting to know that they they messed up the the GTA three which is like that that tr trilogy that series is you know some of the most like iconic games ever right and I think the problem is that they stripped some of the music so you no longer have like Billie Jean and Vice City so it's like the, <sighs> that was kind of the theme of that game. It was, and I knew that they they did they did that like it's licensing. I it was get licensing, it. yeah. Well, well, I get it, and I don't get it. It's weird because if you find like the old some of the old copies on like PlayStation Two or whatever, like you know, obviously it still has the music in it. So there are people who've done over the years they've done like fan rips of like okay we've patched the game to like work but we have like the you know the music files or whatever that uh that that come from from the previous versions, but that's. That's so disappointing. I think part of the problem was the fact that the studio that did the remake built the mobile games. So oh. I think they just grabbed some of that, like yeah. the assets from those games. And it's just, it just is. <sighs> Which, you know, the mobile games weren't bad. Like the ones they did on iOS and stuff, they weren't bad, especially for that time. Oh, of course. But, but, but if you're bringing this next gen, um, you can't you can't get away with that like that that you no you gotta you gotta start over like it's 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 shame the the hilarious part to me is then you see the mods that people made in just a couple of days after release and it's just so much better and you're like okay seriously like yeah how is somebody that does this as a hobby right do a better job at putting this together than the company with full-time developers no i mean no joke especially it's like okay i realize like obviously they're working on GTA 6 or whatever it is and they won't give us anything. It'll be years. We've now, many of us have bought Grand Theft Auto 5 three or four different times because I bought it for the Xbox 360. I bought it for the Xbox yes. One. I'm going to buy it again for the Xbox Series X when like that like rethink flies it. I think I bought it for the PlayStation 4. I definitely bought it for the PlayStation. You know, I'm going to wind up getting the PS5 version. Like I've bought so many freaking copies of this game and it's still going. Like to its credit, it is one of those like good ass games. But... Yeah, like you, you, you can resell us the same game for like seven years. Fans are the ones who had to fix some of the loading time issues. I think for for GTA. Oh, Online. I love that. I love that was one of my favorite stories where like they like and 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 they did accept the patch. They're like, thank you, we have now accepted this patch and 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 are running this. But like when you have fans who are not just patching your game for you, but are creating mods that are better than what you're doing. To me, at a certain point, I'm like, okay, maybe you should just hire some of them. To work on the team or or the studio or whatever that does the the remake like i don't know just a thought right well instead there's gonna file more legal takedowns so you know <laughs> right because 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 right because because why would we want to encourage anybody making it so that the game is more playable and more fun right right well and we have clearly so many topics to discuss yes but, so. uh <laughs> <laughs> We're supposed to be talking about work, but, but see, gaming is work. Gaming is work and, you know, some realms. But um, speaking of also previous work, uh, you had a very, I want to say like unconventional career getting into advocacy because you yeah. were a senior writer at Gizmodo before. Yeah, yeah. I worked at Gizmodo. I worked at Mashable. I used to go on TV networks like CNN and CNBC and, you know, um, uh, 
you know, places like that and um, and talk about tech and other things. And you're right, it is kind of an unconventional way of, of getting into it. So originally, when I went to college, I didn't study computer science. I learned to code and I, and I loved computers. But I just, frankly, some of the experiences that I'd had in some of my classes in high school made me think, I don't know if I want to work with these people. Like, there's no other way for me to say it and be nice. But some of some of the the the, the dudes who were in my classes and the way they made me feel and stuff, I was just like, I don't, I don't have to do this. I enjoy this, but I actually have other interests and other skills. And if you're going to be a jerk to me and make me feel inferior, even though I'm doing better in my class than you, then I don't have to necessarily study this. And so I was like, well, I'm going to I'm going to go to film school, which you know is a very expensive, stupid thing to do. Um, and, but my goal always with that, I was like, okay, obviously I can do nothing with a film degree. Like I'm, I'm not going to be uh, Martin Scorsese uh, and I'm not going to be, you know, like Steven Spielberg. Like I, I have great respect for them, but I know myself and I'm like, I'm not an auteur in that way, even though I have, I, you know, would, would love to be that way, but I'm not. Um, so I, my thought was always, okay, I'll go to law school and I'll be an entertainment attorney or maybe a technology attorney, actually, was was my thought. I was like, because my interest in tech and the fact that I still did keep up with everything and was was still a huge you know fan of all that stuff. Um, and then when I graduated from college, it was right when the um, financial crisis happened. And that um, changed things because it meant that um, going to law school, which was going to be expensive, was not something that my parents could then like afford to pay for. Um, they were like, you will have to get student loans. And I was like, well, that will be very expensive. And so it became one of these things where to be completely candid, I was like, I'm looking at taking out a quarter of a million dollars in debt to go to law school. And I don't know if I will have a job when I graduate. And um, so my senior year of college, I had started doing some some blogging and some writing. It started out doing some music journalism stuff about American Idol, if you can believe it or not, which is embarrassing to admit, but here we are. Um, and people had noticed me on, ironically, this is, this would never happen now, but it was kind of amazing that it even happened then. Um, I'd been a, a frequent commenter on uh, the music editor at USA Today's music blog, and, and he liked my comments. And so they asked me to contribute a column um, about American Idol to, to the paper and online. And, and I'm, I'm a senior in college. I don't have any professional writing experience up to this point. I've been writing my whole life. I'm a good writer. Uh, but that was my first you know, paid experience. And then um, I started blogging um, because blogging was, was becoming kind of a big thing then. And so I was writing for, for websites like the unofficial Apple Weblog, which no longer exists, RIP, and a website called Download Squad, which was kind of like in gadget but for software, um, and, and some other sites. And um, I you know, wasn't getting paid very much money to do it, but I, but I enjoyed doing those things. And it was cool for me because I was like, well, I get to, to write about, I was also writing about pop culture for, for some, some various sites. I was like, well, this is fun for me because I get to write about all the stuff I care about, I'm interested in. And I would figure out you know, hacks or how to do things you know, and, and share stuff with people. And, and that was fun. Um, and what wound up happening was that, again, like I'm now faced with this weird decision where I'm like, I don't know if you know, I'm going to have a job if I go to law school. Um, if, if I'll have a job when I get out and, and then I'll be saddled with all this debt, um, I kind of was like, well, maybe I can give this, this writing thing a try. And, and I was young enough and, and naive enough and, and, you know, had enough, like, this is why it's good to be young in these cases. Cause now I would look at that situation and be like, oh, that'd be really risky. But I was like, okay, cool. We'll give it a shot. What's the worst that can happen? 
And I wound up um, being successful at it, um, which is not common. I was very, very lucky. I had a lot of really good mentors, but I was able to um, you know, get more attention. I was fairly early on Twitter and that helped me a lot. And uh, uh, you know, kind of grow, you know, a, an audience, so to speak. And then I started working for a website called Mashable um, in 2009, and that they hired me full time. And and when I joined, there were I think I was the ninth employee, and and the site was really big. It was a really really big blog at the time, especially in kind of the the web 2.0 um, and and kind of tech space. And um, and I worked there for seven years. And I think you know at, at its peak, there were over 300 people you know, at the company. So I got to see a startup actually go from nine people to 300 people and to see what those changes were, which was really interesting. I got to write about a ton of different topics and and they were incredibly gracious to me and letting me really explore my various interests. At, at various times, my title was everything from like, um, I think mobile app, um, app reporter, uh, web reporter. Uh, I was uh, the original entertainment editor. I created that section. Then I was like senior tech analyst, senior tech correspondent. Um, and, and I wrote about, you know, things that I was interested in. And a lot of them were things around developer focused areas because I still, I'd done some freelance web stuff um, when I was in college and a little bit after when I was still doing freelance writing. Um, but, you know, it wasn't like my primary job, but it was something I still kept up with the industry and I still kept up with what was happening in the space and what happened, what was happening, you know, in, in programming circles in general, especially when, you know, I, like I said, I, I kind of think about my career starting when the iPhone launched, when um, iOS development uh, started, like that was a massive, massive thing. You know, mobile app development was this massive area and I was really into that. And I saw that that was going to be a huge trend, both for mobile web development, but also mobile app development, right? Both native and, and whatnot. And um, you know, I was uh, picked up, you know, kind of the rise of JavaScript. Like these were things I could see happening and that I was interested in and writing about. I left Mashable and I went to Gizmodo and I did some of the similar things there. And then um, and then I got a, a reach out from a recruiter um, that wound up leading me to, to Microsoft where, you know, I, I now work, you know, in, in developer relations and in, and in advocacy. And in some ways, you know, my journey of getting to what I do is very, very different from most of my colleagues. And most people like worked either they were well-known kind of indie devs or they worked for larger companies or they, you know, worked at smaller companies, built their own things. Um, but me, like I always um, was in that space and we're talking with those people and would know enough to be able to build things and break it, but, but you know, have fun. Um, but I, I think that um, I was always telling stories I think about what those developers were doing and, and what their struggles were and, and what their wishes were and like what the opportunities were and what was exciting, what was coming next. I was always telling the developer stories, even though that wasn't, you know, the only thing I focused on. And so even though it was a weird way of getting into DevRel, in some cases it made total sense because it was like, well, now I'm, I'm still telling people stories it's just in a different way. And I'm still listening to feedback, but now maybe I have a chance to, to impact it and make, you know, changes and make things better. Um, but also a way to showcase, hey, this is the really cool stuff people are doing um, that, that, you know, deserves to be seen. Um, and and so in some ways, like it was a, a, a very, very real career switch. And it was to go from, you know, being a, a writer and editor and kind of, you know, commentator and whatnot to being, you know, working at a tech company and working with with engineering teams. But in other ways, I do feel like I have just my whole career going all the way back, you know, even before, actually, funnily enough, if I go back to when I was in high school, 
Um, and I, and I was writing, you know, uh, windows 90, uh, you know, windows 98, you know, tips of the day and stuff like that. Uh, and, and writing reviews of software and things like that and, and little hacks and how people could get things done. I've always been telling developer stories. And so it, it, it was a weird way of getting there, but I, at the same time, I feel like it was something that I was uniquely kind of positioned for, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So that part about storytelling. I think yeah. there's this bit of a misconception when folks think about developer advocates because there's this external view is like, oh, developer advocates just go to conferences and they write articles. That's all they do. Right. But there's more to it. Tell me more about where do you see that overlap between your past work as a writer, as somebody that was telling these stories, and what do you do now as a developer advocate? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I feel like storytelling is a key part of it. And you're right, like a lot of people think developer advocates, yeah, they just, they are the ones who speak at conferences and maybe write blog posts, maybe show demos and uh, spend too much time online on, on Twitter. And all those things are true, especially the part about spending too much time on Twitter. That is absolutely true. And I'm very guilty of that. But I think one of the core things, and I think one of the reasons why, the reason I've always kind of thought about it, um, and it was funny because before I even went into journalism, there was a time like we used to call what we now call developer advocacy, we used to call it evangelism. And there was there was a period of time when I was kind of looking at, okay, well, what can I do with my life? And it was funny because there was a part of me that was like, you know what? I, I could be in DevRel. I could be a I could be a, a, a developer evangelist. Like I I I could do this. Um, and I think that the same thing that struck me there is the same thing that struck me about like why I wanted to start blogging or writing, which is that I like to help people and I like to tell stories and I like to showcase what things people are doing out there. Um, and I think I'm good at that. And I think that a lot of good developer advocates, I think they're good at you know, telling a story about how something works and why something is important and why it matters. Like the story about why I got into the web to begin with, like the, all those possibilities. It was it was stories in magazines that captured my attention and that made me want to look further, right? But that's what got me into it. And then it was like reading, you know, the, about the experiences and seeing, following the projects and the blogs and the other things that the, the developers were doing that got me excited. But there's so much stuff out there, you know, especially now, like it, it's so hard to follow everything and to keep up. And so I feel like one of the things that developer advocates can do, which is really great, is they can help tell a narrative, whether it's, you know, showing like, look at what this, you know, developer or this company or this, you know, this, this you know, app, like tell the story about how this came to be or like just giving people a taste of these are some of the things you can build and, and, and what you can do and letting people create their own stories. I think it's about getting people excited about what the possibilities are. Um, because for me, that's always been my biggest, the, even with video games, right? Like the thing is, it's like the possibilities of, of being able to create something and have this other world. I think that's always been the most exciting part. And so I feel like with, you know, adv advocacy, that's, that's how I feel storytelling is, is a really key part of that is it's about getting people excited and it's not telling a narrative that somebody wants to push necessarily. I mean, some people do that, but that's, but that's, that's really not what it's about. It's about like kind of laying out, this is what's actually happening. Like this is what the real story is. And it, it's not about, well, this is, this is what we want you to believe. It's like, no, this is the stuff that's happening. Sometimes it's messy and sometimes it's fun and sometimes it's broken. Um, but, but this is where it's, this is where it's going. And this is, the potential of what maybe, you know, other people can then build on and, and do their own things with. Yes. And this is where advocacy is not about just promoting product features. It's telling that story, right? Because exactly. to me, if somebody comes up and says, hey, switch to Linux, I'll be like, I don't know. Why would I do that? <laughs> exactly. Instead of somebody that will come in and be like, here's the cool thing that I built and it runs on Linux and you should try this. 
Right. Yeah. Exactly. Like, like the, I mean, that's how I kind of think about web frameworks, right? It's like, you know, I, I'm obsessed with like static site generators and I, I get too obsessed with all the new ones that come out and there are a million of them. And it's always when I see somebody like who's showing me like something cool they've built with it. And then I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in my head, I'm kind of creating, sometimes they tell me the story themselves. Sometimes they are creating it. Uh, you know, sometimes I'm creating it in myself and uh, in my own head. And, and I feel like that's the opportunity. It's like, okay, give people enough information, help tell the story so that they can imagine the possibilities themselves and they can understand like, oh, this is actually really cool. Not, I want you to go use this thing. Like, no, actually just show me how it's being used and and what it's trying to solve and like how you did it, you know? When you made the switch from being a, like writing full-time to being mm -hmm. an advocate full-time, were there any aha moments that you did not expect going into big corporate tech? Yes. So there were several. So first, I did not understand because I went from, you know, newsroom environment, being a journalist where everything moves incredibly quickly and the hours are not great. And if there is a breaking news global story, it is an all hands on deck situation. Not to say that you don't have a spec, you know, that there aren't situations where you're on crunch time because you have a launch that you have to be ready for and that people don't work ridiculous hours. Like, like crunch is real. I'm not trying to discount that, but it is definitely slower and different in tech than it is in journalism. And that I was not expecting. The hardest thing I think at first, my first probably year at Microsoft to get used to was how slow everything was because I would feel like I, I wasn't doing enough because things just move slower. And it's like I had to reset myself and go, oh, no, you're not in a newsroom where you're expected to be working on these longer form stories, but then you have to keep up with like this constantly moving story and and assign, you know, people to, to do things and, and to, to, you know, do quick edits because the news never stops. The news never stops. And and so there's never a point where you can say, okay, we, we've shipped, you know, this, this thing is completed, right? Um, it's similar to software in that way. And that software, you know, I think some people might say, okay, it's done and I'm not going to add to it anymore. But many times, you know, we want to do updates or new versions. But the news is like, okay, you've got to create a new piece of software every single day. And um, sometimes you can build from your past work, but sometimes you can't. And, and so I think getting used to the difference in pace was a really big one. The second thing, and this was actually a really nice experience to learn. I thought going into my job at Microsoft, I thought that my tech background would be the thing that would maybe help me adjust and, and that I could rely on the fact that, you know, um, even though I, I haven't, you know, like worked primarily as a developer, I do know how to how to code. I am, you know, a developer. I'm somebody who who lives and breathes this world. I thought that that was going to help me and would help me get adjusted. And, and it certainly, you know, my, my technical acumen has increased so much in four and a half years. It's crazy how much better I've become at so many different things and how many skills I've picked up. But that really wasn't the thing that helped me. What helped me, and this was interesting, was my soft skills. I didn't realize, I took for granted that not everyone can write well, that not everyone is good at making a persuasive point, that not everyone, you know, can be concise when they need to, that not everyone's a good public speaker. And, and I found that like my, my ability to communicate, especially with, with writing, I think, um, also with speaking, which is a part of advocacy, you know, like we were joking, like you speak at conferences, that's what you do. Uh, and, and I, not all journalists have that skill either, I should, I should add, but I did. And, and, and I had that skill going into it. Um, but, the, but the public speaking stuff aside, like having, 
um, just the ability to be a good communicator was so beneficial with so many different groups and not just with with the you know the the non-technical teams with technical teams when I deal with engineering teams being able to be a good um, communicator was so much more helpful in many ways than being able to maybe talk to them on a technical level and that was I think the biggest surprise that I had was that there were all these skills that I'd learned in journalism that I didn't realize would benefit me in tech but had a massive massive impact and um, really helped me and, and continue to help me to this day. And so, you know, I think sometimes a lot of times people deride soft skills. Um, I, even the way that we frame it, hard skills versus hot, soft skills, I think is really, really unfair because it's necessary. Communication skills are things that are really important and they make everyone's job easier and better. And if you are able to communicate well with people, you can get so much more done. And, and it can be such a huge advantage. And, and I didn't realize how important that would be and how useful that would be. So true, especially given how underrated soft skills are, because a lot of folks often think that, you know, as long as you're talented, as long as you know how to code, you can lock yourself in a room, shell out great code, and then be that, you know, the team genius. In reality, right. I, I have seen folks that are probably very talented engineers they know what they're doing but i would never want to work with them in terms no. of like how they communicate how they ask for things how they yeah. tell you what their opinions are and you're like wow this person is very pushy about that kind of stuff and yeah no you're, you're exactly right i mean that goes back to like my early experiences in my computer programming classes in high school where like i was like i don't i don't want to work with you i don't need to do this now I was I'm lucky that I was wrong and I was wrong. I would have been I would have done just fine studying computer science in college. I would have been just fine and I would have found my people and and it would have been okay. But I had other interests and and so I didn't have to do that and I still kept up with, you know, learning to code and keeping up with things that were happening in the industry um, you know, outside of school. But you're right, you know, it is about and I also feel like yes, you do have those people, you, you always have unicorns. You always have those one-offs of those people who are just really brilliant and they can get away with anything. And that goes for people who are really good speakers and have really good communication skills too, because those people can be really difficult to work with as well, right? Um, but you have these these brilliant jerks, which I think is a phrase, and that exists in, in every every field. And there are some people who are talented enough and are good enough, they can get away with it. That is absolutely true. Most people cannot. Um, you know, like, and, and and most of us are not going to be those people. So it is really important to be able to know how to communicate and work together. And I think even if your day is doing coding in and out, being able to explain why you made a decision or why your opinion is what it is or why you are, you know, wanting to work on this thing goes such a long way. I mean, I talk to so many developers who they get frustrated, engineers who get frustrated that they're not getting their their changes, you know, pushed in. They're not able to work on things they want. And sometimes, you know, I'll talk with them. I'm like, okay, well, how are you talking about this with your team? And you realize that the breakdown is coming, that they're, in their mind, they think they're being very clear and that all the advantages make sense, but they're not doing a good job expressing that. And they're not doing a good job listening to feedback and, and taking into account, okay, if I make this change, it might have this effect on this other thing that that will will be bad you know and and so um being able to communicate i think is really really important right and even conference talks right it's yes. one of those things where you go to a conference where somebody is talking about some enterprise features like this is going to secure your environment by these three environment variables and you're like, I'm like what does that mean boring talk 
ever. Yeah. I don't want to listen to that. Instead of, you know, somebody that comes in, even if they're less technical, but they're excited oh, about they're it. They're excited? The, like, night and day. Yeah. No, totally. Because the thing is, I think, I think people, I think we, I think we do two things in our world. I think that we overestimate how difficult it is for people to be upskilled on a technical level. I think that we make it seem like that is way harder than it is. And I think we underestimate how hard it is for people to be upskilled on a social and on a communications level. And I think people, so, so I think you have this situation where people think that it's much harder for people to be, to, to learn to code than it is for people to learn to talk. And that's not true. They're both different skills and they're both challenging, but people can learn to do both. And, 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 and one isn't any better or harder, you know, than, than the other, um, which is why I don't even like that, you know, designation hard and soft because it, it denigrates one. But I, but I feel like we, we do, we overestimate, oh, well, you know, um, a lot of people do this to themselves. I see this with students all the time. I see this with people who are switching careers all the time where you're thinking, oh, I, I, I can't learn to code or I can't learn to take on this skill because it's too difficult. And you know what? Maybe you don't want to be a, a coder day in and day out. I mean, I wouldn't want to. I like to play with code, but I, I would not enjoy my career being somebody who is literally just committing and, and writing code all day. That, that for me, would not be super, right. super great. Um, I, I, I enjoy working with product a lot more. But that's the thing. There are all these other skills. You can be a product manager. You can be a program manager. You can be a technical writer. You can work in marketing. There are all these other avenues and things. And and like I talk to people because, you know, the media business is not doing great right now. And I left, I think within the the few months after I left, I think there there were, I don't even know how many tens of thousands of layoffs there were in, in journalism. And it was really scary because I saw a lot of my friends lose their jobs. And a lot of people have come to me over the last four and a half years asking, okay, how do I get a job that's not in in media? And and these are people who don't necessarily want to work in comms or PR. And and right. um, I have nothing but respect for people who work in comms and PR. I don't do that. Um, and uh, I, I could, I don't know if there would be a challenge for me to, to do that, to be honest with you. But I talk to people who are looking at these skills and they think, okay, well, I can't do anything else. You could go to a tech company because you were technical. And I'll talk to them. I'll go, okay, no, but if you're a managing editor at a at a publication, that is the same thing as being a PM. It is identical. Um, you just have to slot out one thing for another. And you're yes, you're going to have to learn some new skills and, and learn some new things, but you're going to be able to do it because you've learned new things all the time. That's the thing. You know, I, I talk to people who are IT professionals, um, IT pros in kind of the old sense, and they look at all the DevOps stuff and the, the way that cloud has happened, and they feel really overwhelmed and then going, I, I can't keep up with all this new stuff. And I'm going, okay, you're going to have to learn some new things, but many of your old skills will translate over and in, into what you do in this new thing. And it's not going to be as hard as you think it is. And so that's something I, I, I talk to people, you, especially like students, like I said, career switchers, people who might be coming through non-traditional means, I think they sometimes over, you know, they, they convince themselves this is going to be impossible for me to do. And it's not. And again, it doesn't mean that every single person needs to be that hardcore engineer. There are yes. so many other things you can do and so many other ways you can help. And it takes all parts. Right. There's a lot of that artificial gatekeeping that happens where yes. just the other day. So I work in developer tools for the web and I had this conversation with somebody that was like, yeah, I wish we would stop dumbing down the experience of this person from outside uh, the company was mentioning this. I, I wish we'd just stop dumbing down the experiences because web developers need to know the ins and outs of the, you know, 
Really? Why? Like, no, no, they don't. They absolutely do not. Like for me to get a website, I don't need to know how the JavaScript compiler works. And no. I don't care. No, and, and if you go back again, like my entryway, and, and, and also I feel like I hate that so much. I hate that artificial gatekeeping. That's such a great term. Because think about how many of us who are a little bit older, how we learned to write web apps. We had a text editor and we had HTML and maybe some lines of JavaScript. Mm-hmm. And we were throwing things up and we were, you know, hitting refresh in our browser window and we were seeing stuff come to life and we were so excited that we were building things and we were making it work. That's what we did. Or you think about even going even further back, people who were building, you know, apps and, and games for the Apple II and the IBM PC and for DOS and all that stuff. You know, or even earlier than that with the 8-bit computer era. And like that's how people get interested in things. You don't need to understand how, you know, the, those compilers worked. You don't need to understand what was going on behind the scenes. You just wanted to make something to make it cool. So why why do modern developers now need to understand all the ins and outs of JavaScript, which has become so complicated and is so many different things? And I love JavaScript, but it is. It's, it's like, you don't even know where to start, right? You're like, okay, well, right. which is why a lot of people just focus on React or they focus on Node or they focus on a framework because that in and of itself is its own freaking world. But why do they need to understand how how any of that is working in the back end? Like, why does that matter? If you want to, that's awesome. Please do and work on that. But like, the, I thought the whole goal of this, I mean, at least for me, the whole appeal was that we can create things, and and and, and we anybody can do it, and and we're adding to it. Like, that to me has always been the power of the web: is that anybody can add to it, anybody can do it. I like that. So it's creativity. That at the end of totally. the day, if you want to encourage somebody to build a website. How is it helping them to be creative to know the ins and outs? Well, here's how the browser processes your web request right. and all the like the. No, who cares? Who cares? And some people might, right? Some people might get really into performance right. data and they might really want to know, okay, well, how can I speed this up or why is this happening this way? And that's awesome. And I say, go for it. And, and please, I love to watch those talks, even though I don't understand all of them, but I love to watch it mostly because I, you know, I take that back. I love to watch them when people are excited and are really into what they're doing. Even if I don't understand everything they're talking about, I get a lot from that experience. But that's not a, that should not be a prerequisite. Like I think that's why I love the stuff that you work on like, you know, um is so great because it gets makes it easy for people to do stuff and it, it helps enable that creativity. Because those are the things, those are the ideas that are going to wind up, you know, changing things. It's like Jeff Bezos was not the world's greatest programmer when he started a website to sell books, right? Like, 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 yes, Bill Gates and Paul Allen, very technical guys, very smart guys, but they were also building tools to try to make it easy for other people to build things, right? Right. But Jeff Bezos was not like, he just wanted to sell some books and he thought the, a website might be a good idea. You know, um, Pierre Omidyar, like he like wanted to be able to like buy Pez dispensers and like, have an auction for them, right? Like these are like in that that's how eBay was born. Like these are people who now he again he was very technical, but like the, these are these ideas and these creative creative things that I, th- I think so much innovation comes out of creativity. It doesn't come out of of just you know what what is the the technical challenge here and, and we understand every aspect about how it works. It's like, no, we want to solve a problem. We want to create something. Now we're going to figure out how to build it. Right. There's a good reason we're not writing binary right now and testing exactly. it. <laughs> exactly. We're not writing binary right now. And again, if you want to, go for it. But we're not. We we, we have like frameworks in, in, in higher level languages for a reason. So yeah, I feel like 
that that artificial gatekeeping, I love that term, is really negative. And I feel like it it makes people feel like, okay, well, if I can't do all of this, then I don't deserve to be here. Yes. For that. No. Yes. I've heard about so many stories of people even dropping out of yes. the computer science program because of yes. this, you know, it's like, oh, I will not know how to do a, like the, you know, the tree sorting algorithms. Like, yeah, that's fine. You don't need to. I've, right. I've been in the industry for, I don't know, seven, eight years. I have never had a, granted I'm a PM, but I deal with code. Not right. once have I had to deal with a, you know, well, how about figure out the fastest way to sort this tree? No. Not and once. You know, no. And you know, the great thing is, and again, this is, think we're all building on the shoulders of giants, but because of great work that other people have done, we have Stack Overflow. We have Google. You know, we have resources that we can look up and we we, we can reference. You know, it's like, it's like, it takes all types. Yes, there are going to be some of those people who would need to do that low level, really hard work that are so smart and I'm so grateful for them. But that's not everybody. Like that's, that's just kind of like, not everybody's going to be that, that, you know, like, um, you know, like engineer who who can get away with bloody murder. Like that's that's not going to be the case for everybody. But it takes all types. We need we need PMs. We need people who have product vision. We need people who you know are design experts. We need people who think about usability and accessibility. We need people you know who think about how to communicate with people. We need marketing people. Like we need all types. And and I think just trying to to make people feel like, oh no, if if I don't get all of this, then I shouldn't even try. I see that a lot too, where people will just drop out because they're like, oh, well, I can't be good enough to do this one thing, so I shouldn't even bother. It's like, okay, this isn't playing professional football, right? Like, this isn't one of those things where there are only going to be, you know, 300 people in the world that can do this because it's not, you know, it's like we don't have enough, we, we, we have, we don't have enough people to do all the, all the work that we want to get done, right? Like, th- th- this is not the Olympics. Like, I, I know that so many of us in tech like to think that we're the most important and most rarefied people. We are not. You know, and uh, and 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 it takes all types. And and again, there are these skills that people have that I think so. Oftentimes, we think that okay, because I know how to do something, everyone does, and so we we sell ourselves short. Tech industry is big, very very big, and there's room for everyone. Absolutely, literally. In fact, it gets, in fact, it gets better the more people you have because you have these different perspectives. And you have these different eyes, like honestly, you know, like that's, I mean, that's again, kind of one of the the um, great things that's happened with, with open source and free software over the last 20 years or so is, is having more people looking at things and contributing to things has made things better, you know, and, and has opened things up. But, but I think like the more diversity we have, the more different types of people you have, like, you're going to have different perspectives and people who will see things in a different way, which is so important and so fun. Right. To me as an engineer, if I would be writing software that I need to ship in front of customers, they'd probably hate the UI. I'm so grateful that I work with designers and researchers right. that do this as their job, that they look and say, then nobody will understand this. And I'm like, oh, right. you're right. You're you're actually, you're right. Because I, I did not think about it that way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, there's so many times like I was I was dealing with something um, today where we, we made some sort of video preview and... We didn't think about how the motion graphics might impact people who might have different types of epilepsy. Unfortunately, what we were doing, it, it, it wasn't going to trigger anything in anyone, but it, but it brought up, it was like, okay, I'm not even thinking about you know those things. And like, that's why it's important to have those other perspectives. Accessibility is another area, which is massively important, you know, making sure that things work well with screen readers and people who have other, you know, um, sight, um, uh, you know, um, uh, challenges or people who 
Um, I was hit by a I was hit by a car a couple of years ago. Um, I was crossing the street and, and a car just wasn't paying attention, just whammed in and hit me. And I um I broke my wrist, my right wrist, and I'm right-handed. And I was in a cast for a couple of weeks when I couldn't even move. I, I you know didn't have any mobility at all. And so I I um that made writing and coding really really difficult. And it opened my eyes. I, I'm sad that it took me, it took that experience to really open my eyes to accessibility stuff, but it really did because it made me think, okay, A, you know, I, I was able to appreciate, you know, the people who had done more, but B, I was really able to say, oh, these are challenges and these are ways I've never even thought about it when I design something or when I, you know, do something. I've never even given this a thought and uh, about what it would be like if I had to do this with one hand. And um, what a great perspective that was for me, honestly. And and so I try to remind myself of those things, uh, but but that's why we need more people involved. You know, like you you need those designers and UI experts who are going to tell you, Dan, uh, I get what you're trying to do. No one's going to do this. And when we also need people who are like, okay, does this work well with people who are colorblind? Does this work well with people who have you know other um, you know uh, um, uh, you know uh, abilities or, or or whatever? Like that's that's um, that's really important. Like a lot of the ethical challenges with AI, right? How many times have we seen this? If only you had somebody on the team that had the experiences that now you're seeing tweeted about. Yep. Maybe you did not think about having this PR disaster on your hands now. No, 100%. Like maybe if we'd let this, we'd let other people's experiences. You know, there was, um, so Apple got into a lot of hot water when they were, uh, had proposed some changes for the way that they would be dealing with uh, iMessages that that um, uh, kids would send to one another um, on the iPhone, and um, it, was, it was supposed to be, you know, uh, they, they announced this a couple months ago, and they said, okay, well, you know, if kids are sending each other um, uh, pictures that our AI says is, is nudity, then we will alert the kid, and then and then we'll tell their parents. And a lot of privacy groups, rightfully, um, like shot back and were like, that could potentially put kids who might be in homes who aren't accepting and might have like other situations in danger. And um, Apple announced you know, this week that they will be making changes to that policy. And in fact, they will still be showing kids and kind of alerting them, hey, this has, you know, nudity or, or, or whatever the, the content might may be that you can choose to, you know, um, uh, uh, view this or not, but it's not going to alert their parents. And and that felt like a huge win. And and again, I think that it was one of those things where it was like, I know that the people who were working on that had good intentions and had good ideas, but they hadn't considered the perspective of, okay, what if this is a 13-year-old who doesn't live in a home where they can be open about who they are or who, you know, even if, if friends sent them something and they didn't pay attention to the pop-up and and their parent is alerted that they looked at something, you know, like like, you know, untoward that they're now going to potentially be you know, in, in, in danger and trouble. Those are real things you have to think about. And, um, and clearly they hadn't. And so I'm really glad that they reversed course, at least on that aspect of how that stuff works. Right. But again, it emphasizes the need to have those diverse perspectives yes. and people that 100%. are thinking about that, right? Yeah. You because need those people in the room before you make the announcement, right? Like uh, at least in, you know, they were able to, at least to Apple's credit, they took the feedback, but yes, you know, that's the thing you need more diverse people in the room. Same thing with AI, as you were saying, you need people who are, who are in that room to look at things. You also need data sources that are, you know, aren't coming from a, a place of bias. You know, because we've seen that happen too, where the models are are trained on certain data and and will make decisions that are are not correct. 
And um, and that can be really, really scary. And so you, you need to have people who are looking at it from an ethical standpoint and having more perspectives because AI is so exciting and it's going to transform so many things. It already has, but it could be it could go real wrong real quick if we're not careful about how we deal with it and if we aren't ethical about how we approach it. A hundred percent. Absolutely. And this conversation is going great. And I feel like we can be talking for hours more. But I have one last question for you, Christina. Yes. If you would tell our listeners from your experience, your career, one piece of unconventional advice, and this is the kind of stuff that you don't read on blogs too often, you don't see it in comments, what's that? What was the one piece of advice in, that you'd give them in their career in tech um, that helped you be where you are today? I, I will say this, and, and I, I, would, I would give this advice to anybody regardless of, of what part of tech you're in. Um, write and write every day if you can, even if it's just for yourself, even if you're not publishing for anyone else to see, get your thoughts out there. It's really, really important. It's, it's helped me a lot to, to synthesize and see how I, I, I see things, to um, uh, you know get across how I feel about things. You get better the more you do it. I would say write every day. And I would also say keep a log of the interesting things and the exciting things that you come across. Because that can be things that can both inspire new ideas, might give you, you know, other opportunities to look at. Um, it, it might, you know, help improve your knowledge in a certain area. So I, I would say write and, and and take notes on on the cool things that you see. That, that that would be my advice. This is fantastic advice. And Christina, for folks that want to follow you online, learn more about what you're doing, where can they go? Thank you so much. So you can follow me on Twitter. I'm film underscore girl on Twitter. I'm also on Instagram at film underscore girl. Um, I'm trying to get to uh, 10,000 Instagram followers. I'm way behind. But if I can get there, I've promised people, well, I've promised my podcast co-host that I will wear, I will convince the people at Microsoft to let me wear the Clippy costume and that I will I will like terrorize people in it. So that that's a promise. So follow me on Instagram to get my numbers up there. Um, and then I do a podcast about uh, just a tech and nerd culture called Rocket. Um, it's on uh, Relay FM, so that's Relay FM, uh, uh, slash, slash Rocket. And um, I do another podcast with uh, my friend Brett Chirpster, who's um, a software developer as well, called Overtired. Uh, and that's overtiredpod.com. So. Excellent. Christina, thank you so much for joining us today. Dan, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for asking me. I really appreciate this. This has been great. 